I think when I went into the kindness challenge, I thought of myself as a kind person already. Um, and so like there were some things where I was like, okay, what do I even do to like be kind? Cause like normally I'm kind. Uh, so clearly I'm a super humble person too. My name is Kyle Bowen and I picked my roommate, Alex Buckle. Uh, one big thing was just like speaking affirming language towards him um, and kind of building himself up. That's one thing I thought uh, would be really helpful. Uh, but then going into the kindness challenge, I started realizing how hard it was to like only speak kindly of somebody and to nix all the negative talk that would like flow to somebody who you've known since you were like 18 and like as guys in our 20s sometimes uh, we aren't the most uplifting of one each one another uh, so we're playing a game called super mega baseball 2 it's not like mlb the game um, it's nothing like high product uh product value um and so like it's kind of goofy and cheesy so like you wouldn't think we would take it seriously but every time he would miss a hit i'd just be like oh man you're losing us the game like come on dude like get it together and just small comments like that where um, he'd just make a tiny mistake in a game that wasn't important and was made to like be goofy and comedic uh, and instead, I just kind of was turning it into like a serious life or death thing just by like constantly making small digging remarks at him. Uh, and like we played and just like nothing popped into my head, but like 30 minutes later, I felt so bad and I had to like go back and apologize because I realized that for the course of like 30 minutes there, all I had been saying to him was like unkind, hurtful things. And it was just like small and little and rooted in like a video game. So like you could say, does it really matter? But I realized that like in that moment, one of my core patterns of playing just video games with a friend was to like tear him down. And so I'd say that there's lots of little unconscious, like subtle things and patterns and habits that I found myself having that I had to first like break down and undo before I could consistently be kind to somebody. The cool thing um, that we saw is like, we almost set a new normal for our relationship. Where like one key element of our relationship used to be like degrading and demeaning jokes because that's just like how guys joke, right? And that's like kind of how we'd explain it away. Um, but I think one new core factor of our relationship is like positive talk to one another uh, and becoming encouraging people towards each other, uh, which is really cool because like we live together so we spend most of our time like with each other uh, when we're at home. And so home has become a like happier, healthier place because there's so much less of that negative talk, even in a joking manner or in an unintentional way, um, where home has become a much more positive, encouraging place for both him and I. I'm so grateful for uh, Kyle's willingness to kind of give that testimony about uh, undertaking the kindness challenge. You know, one thing he said, you know, he was, he realized about 30 minutes later that he had been uh, kind of been un unkind, uh, critical of his roommate, 
which is great because that takes me about three weeks. Um, and if I'm lucky, it's three days. But to realize that in 30 minutes and then turn it around, I, I think that's a real neat spiritual gift. Uh, Kyle told this other story I thought was fascinating. It didn't make it to the video, but he was at a laundromat and he saw uh, this guy at the laundromat who was trying to put bills into the machine, but the, the bills were crinkled and it wouldn't take him. And Kyle thought to himself, you know, somebody ought to be kind to that guy. And then he realized that somebody is me. And so he goes over to the guy, he says, hey, I've got some crispy ones you want to trade. And, and he just helps the guy out. And, and he was so grateful for what Kyle had done. And it, it didn't cost Kyle anything. And so I hope that you're, you're take, you've taken the kindness challenge. I hope you pick someone to be intentionally kind for this month of January. Uh, and, and you've realized how hard it is really to be kind. It sounds easy, but when you get to it, not saying anything negative for an entire day, that's hard. That takes will and determination and spiritual maturity. We're finishing this series, Kindness is Our Superpower. And last week we talked about how kindness is the canary in your soul. When you find kindness leaving, it's a warning sign to you that, that you're kind of stepping away out of that, that path that God has for you. N.T. Wright goes as far as to say, reflecting on Ephesians chapter 4, that when that, our conscience becomes seared, when we stop thinking in terms of kindness and how we act towards others, we begin to lose the image of God. That is the birthright of humanity. It's, it's one of the ways that God created us to reflect his image to others. But when we refuse to be kind, we lose that. It loses the thing that keeps us human. And how do we stay human? I want you to do an experiment with me, if you don't mind. I want you to think about a moment that it's at least 15 years ago. That's 2005, at least before 2005. Now, I realize some of you in this audience don't have that memory because you weren't there in 2005, and, and so just do the best you can. Others of you, you're like, 2005, I couldn't remember that if you paid me. But again, I want you to do the best you can. Before 2005, a memory when someone or God was kind to you. And then just kind of hold on to that for a second. Marilyn Robinson, who's one of my favorite essayists, she writes this piece about atoms. And she, she notes that the human body replaces nearly all the cells about every five, excuse me, every seven to 15 years. Every human cell is made up of atoms. But every five to 15 years, every cell in your body, including even your brain cells, are new. You get a new you. I mean, it really kind of changes how you think about that phrase, you are what you eat. Literally, what you eat becomes you. Now, do you remember that memory from 15 years ago about someone or God who was kind to you? At some point, your brain decided when you fell asleep that night, you know, I'm going to take this memory, this, amendment, this uh, event that happened today, and we're going to keep this one. And somehow your, your brain encoded it into cells so that you could hold on to that. And sometime in the last 15 years, that cell or cluster of cells that held on to that memory has been replaced with different atoms. Do you remember your memory? Isn't that profound? 
The universe itself is finding ways to preserve God's love in your heart. The universe has found a way, God has found a way, not only in our lives to preserve the memory of kindness, but we can remember things that didn't happen to us. We can remember the stories of things that happened before us, those stories of kindness, those stories of God's love. The universe bends itself towards kindness so that you can remember today what God has done for you. You are what you eat. Not just in the bread that we took today, not just in the fruit of the vine that we took today, because that's a small kind of symbol of what happens every day. That the atoms we consume have insisted and sustained our lives. The universe is for you when you remember kindness. That's our identity. More than anything else, it's that we are the beneficiaries of a cosmos that is for us that leans toward a God who cares. So today I want us to look at a story in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus and his disciples have been invited over a to a Pharisee's house to eat. Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, the Pharisee said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. A sinner. This is a fascinating story. This is a story about identity. There's this woman who anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and her tears, and Jesus' kindness saves her. She knows who she is. She's a sinner, and she's redeemed. Jesus knows who he is as Lord and God. The Pharisee doesn't know who anyone is. Well, he thinks he does. The Pharisee thinks he's the host, but when the Lord of hosts arrives, he reorients every table. The Pharisee thinks he's at the head of the table, but when Jesus is there, he orients the table toward love. The Pharisee thinks that his self-imposed illusion of righteousness makes him a judge. My friend Randy says that, you know, Pharisees were the people that tried their best to follow the law. They would make great neighbors. They'd make a great neighbor because they always mowed their lawn. They always pulled their trash bin uh, back uh, to their house. They would be great to have a Pharisee as your neighbor until in their self-righteousness, they began to lean over the fence and look into your yard and offer a few suggestions about how you should start living your life. The Pharisee thinks he knows who he is. He thinks he's the judge to this woman who has clearly had some misfortune and mistakes in her life. He thinks he's the judge to Jesus. I mean, if he were a prophet, he would know who this woman is. But she is a supplicant, not a sinner. And Jesus is so much more than a prophet. I want to pause here 
and just say something. There are people who are doing their absolute best to turn their lives around. Because they have suffered misfortune, because they've had some missteps in their life, and they're doing their very absolute best to find their way back to God. And the last thing that they need in that process of redemption, in that process of turning themselves around, in that process of finding themselves back in God's love and knowing who they are in that, is some religious person that wants to remind them about who they were. May we as a church be the kind of people that orients anyone on their journey towards God, not away. And so Jesus takes his time to just kind of like shed some light in this guy's life. Even though the Pharisee has it all twisted in his mind about what righteousness looks like and what forgiveness looks like and what change looks like. He thinks the person that needs to change at that table is the woman, but she is in the act of repentance. She's in the act of changing. And so Jesus takes this moment in kindness to tell the man a story. And it's a pretty simple story. You'd have to be pretty dense to miss it, which is why I missed it. Look, Jesus says, there, there are two debtors, one that owed a little and one that owed a lot, and both were forgiven. Which one, oh, teacher of the law? Which one, oh, self-imposed, self-righteous man? Which one, oh, Pharisee, do you think would be more grateful as a debtor? It's not a hard question. I mean, I'm sure the Pharisee must be thinking to himself, what is the deeper wisdom here that I can share so that I can reveal myself as the wise host of this table? But in that moment, he kind of just says, well, duh. It's the one who has forgiven the greater debt. And so the story continues. Then turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven, and she has shown great love. But the one from... But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. This is a story about identity. This is a story about a man named Simon who doesn't know who he is, who doesn't know who Jesus is, who doesn't know uh, who is being made right by God, and who is desperately trying to earn it on his own. Simon failed as the host, but when Jesus shows up and reorients the table, you just might be surprised who's sitting there. Kindness refuses to see the false self. This is what you put on you and what others try to put on you. I mean, the most dangerous illusions that we embrace are the ones that we put on ourselves to make us something that we're not. The Pharisee tried so hard, Simon tried so hard to appear to have it all together. But what is equally damaging is when someone else tries to put their illusions on you to say you are not worthy, that you will never be redeemed. What Simon didn't understand was that woman was so much more than one of those women. Jesus' kindness cuts through the illusion. 
He is able to see because he is universally kind. He is kind to someone in the act of repentance, in the process of change, in the act of turning herself around. He is kind to the one that is so lost and so blind, he can't see a thing, uh, he can't see it until uh, Jesus tells him a gentle story to bring him back into reality and back into alignment with God. Kindness is a superpower. Mysterio is one of my favorite villains in the Marvel Universe, and he doesn't have any powers. That's what I love about him. At least not at first. Now, I know every supervillain dies several times and is resurrected, and sometimes Mysterio comes back with superpowers. But the true geeks know Mysterio's backstory. He was a stagehand at a theater. He wasn't even a magician. He just worked with them and watched them. And he realized, if I can fool people, if I can trick people, then I can have power. And so he spends his career as a villain creating illusions that are so powerful and confusing. He tricks many of the superheroes so that they end up doing the wrong things for what they thought were the right reasons. Mysterio very rarely uses violence. He just uses smoke and mirrors. And probably the most powerful story about this is when Mysterio goes up against Wolverine. And he gets Wolverine so the illusion is so compelling that Wolverine ends up hurting and killing most of his friends. And there's this moment in the comic book where Mysterio snaps his fingers and all of the smoke and mirrors just kind of fall away. And it's that, at that point where Wolverine realizes what he's done. And he breaks. And he loses everything. I'm absolutely convinced that 90% of the power of the evil one is smoke and mirrors. It is the illusion of the lies whispered in your ears that are untrue about yourself so that you will do the wrong thing for the right reason. I mean, I deserve a little happiness so I can fill in the blank. I'm not worth anything, so it doesn't matter if fill in the blank. But the power of Christ in us, the power of God in us, is that kindness refuses to see the false self. It refuses to acknowledge the smoke and mirrors. And we, who are the people who are followers of Christ, who are called by God to cut through the lies. And it's to simply say, I know what the world has told you about who you are. But that isn't true. And I refuse to treat you that way. I know the world has told you that you're not smart, that you're not handsome, you're not pretty, that you're not valuable, that the only thing that does have value is your body, but that's not true. I know the world has told you is that your only value is to produce. And so that 60-hour work week and the way that you gain control and feeling accomplished is by telling everybody how tired you are and that somehow your bank account gives you your worth. We are here to tell you that God doesn't treat you that way. And we won't, eat, we won't either. Kindness refuses to see the false self. And it cuts through the illusion. So I want to get real practical for a minute. And I want to talk about what does kindness look like in real life. So I'm going to talk about two fairly easy and non-controversial topics. I want to talk about politics. And I want to talk about our current discernment. Now, it's true that a, uh, if a minister uh, advocates for a particular politician from the pulpit, 
uh, that church is at risk and losing its uh, 501c3 status. That's not going to happen today, but I bet you're listening. <laughs> you may be passionate, you may be cynical, you may be agnostic about politics, and that's fine. You may feel the desire to engage in conversations about who should be president or who shouldn't. You may just be sick of the whole thing. And it's not surprising why this is the case. Uh, rewind the clock about three years. Uh, the two candidates were Hillary Clinton, who was the second most disliked candidate in the history of modern politics. Save only Donald Trump, who was the most disliked candidate in the history of politics. And so it's not surprising that that story and the kind of PTSD that you've experienced from the last election cycle might be bringing a little bit of angst to you in this moment. One of the most beautiful things about Highland is our diversity. We have a lot of different and beautiful theological perspectives here. We come from many different colors and races and nations, and I think that's something to celebrate. We may even have different people that have different political views. I just, I have a question. I mean, I have, I worked before in the most blue county in the most blue state. Somehow I ended up in the most red county in a red state. I don't know what God's doing with my career, but I have friends who are intelligent and who are rational and who are faithful people that come down on different sides of the political spectrum, and they do it honestly. But I am concerned because I feel like there's something lost this time. It's almost like we as a nation forgot what it means to be civil. And part of that is because I think we feel like we've had to make a bargain. But as my friend Daniel wrote, you may feel like you're being choice, uh, forced to choose between the lesser of two evils, which should make us re-examine our participation in evil. You may feel like the Democrats are your enemies. That's probably unrealistic. But it's the way you feel. So remember that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. You may feel like the Republicans are attacking or even persecuting the things that you hold dear. That's fine. But remember that Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us. It's as my friend Fate Haygood said, we are not for the elephant or the donkey, but we are for the lamb who takes the sins of the world away. And we as citizens of heaven need to remember that before we are rich or poor, before we are white or black, before we are Democrat or Republican, before we are even American, we are Christian and that identity shapes everything else. It shapes how you speak to people who disagree with you. It shapes what you can and you cannot say on the internet. It shapes how you view others who do not agree with you. It shapes your entire life. God's kingdom was bigger than the Jewish nation. God's kingdom was bigger than the Roman Empire. And it's bigger than an election in November. And there's a chance that your candidate will win or they may lose. 
but it is the victory or defeat of your party where you find your hope and your security. Another way of thinking about that is, is God's kingdom so easily dismantled by four years of a slightly different way of governance? Our identity is not found in our greatness, but in our service. And the road of a Christian is a road that cannot avoid the cross. We are in the process of uh, discernment right now as a church. And if you missed class today, it's going to be available for you online. And you can uh, watch what Amanda Pittman said about Acts. It was an incredibly profound uh, thought. But I want to remind you that it does not say anywhere in Scripture that you are allowed to hold contempt for a brother or a sister for anywhere, for any reason. There is nowhere in Scripture where that is justified before God. You may feel we're going to enter into a time of listening. We've kind of been in a, a, a phase right now where we're, we're hearing and we're, we're talking. We're going to enter into a time of listening where our eldership honestly and sincerely wants to hear from you. And there's going to be a lot of different ways that you can do that. But one of those ways is going to be in small groups. And my guess is you're going to be in a small group with someone that does not agree with you perfectly. And that someone may say something to you that's offensive. It may say something to you that's hurtful. They may speak in the name of God in a way that does not reflect your values. In that moment, you are not given the freedom to strike back. In that moment, you are given the courage to be kind. I mean, you might be in that room and you're going to hear somebody speak from their emotions and some of this is anxiety and some of this is fear and some of this is hurt that they've suffered and, and, and you're going you're gonna to experience somebody saying something that sounds like, I can't understand how anyone could possibly disagree with me if they're reading, reading the Bible honestly. In that moment, you've been given freedom to be kind. But I just can't find anywhere in Scripture where you're allowed to hold your brother and sister in contempt. The, the end of the Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus on the cross. And it says, and, and, the, and the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming on up and offering him sour wine saying, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there uh, kept deriding him saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Have you noticed the three highlighted texts that occur there over and over as Jesus is suffering the agony of the cross? Save yourself. Take care of yourself. It's a new you. It's a new, it's a new year. It's a new you. Save yourself. In that moment when Jesus is suffering to die, he probably had any more reason than anyone else on the planet to choose not to be kind to those who were mocking him. But instead, the story continues like this. But the other, the other person on the other cross rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
He replied, Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus in his kindness remembers you. The entire universe is geared for you to remember God's kindness. Jesus on the cross remembers you. Let's sing about that love together. Please stand.